0: Welcome to Helping Challenging Children. This podcast is for adults who want to understand why children behave the way they do and how to support them to increase their ability to self-regulate and to become more independent. My name is Dr. Pat McGuire. I'm a developmental and behavioral pediatrician and I have been working with these children for over 30 years. And I can tell you that with the right support, They all do great. So enjoy these podcasts and hopefully you learn a little bit each time. Greetings. Historically, society has followed a punitive approach to child rearing and discipline. It goes back thousands of years when men were seen as the ultimate authority and had complete right to use physical methods of behavioral control to their family, employees, and slaves. These people were all considered property, just like cows, pigs, and other animals. These animals were also taught or disciplined using physical means. We have come a long way from there in how we see people, but our means of teaching skills and handling errors and misbehavior in children hasn't changed all that much. Yes, we no longer flog people or cut off hands that stole, but we continue to approach disobedience and misbehavior as affronts to our authority with physical or verbal attacks seen as the right way to handle situations. The situation where we especially see a misunderstanding of children is in the school system. Educators continue to see their role as disciplinarians, with education being secondary. Over my 30 years in practice, I have had hundreds of patients who were placed in behavioral disorder classrooms, given multiple detentions and suspensions, with no understanding by the administration as to why their students weren't behaving. I was told that there would be no discussion because the student made their choices and had to live with the consequences. But if adults don't know that background through which children and adolescents have to decide what to do, they will not be able to help the child or change the behaviors. As schools began to be opened in the colonial periods, there was a strong connection with the church. The overarching theme of these schools was to control children who were seen as disruptive. The teacher was to instill a religious spirit in the children through an authoritarian approach. The main desire of the teacher was to dominate his students. The teacher in colonial times was a supervisor, since the student was responsible for his own learning. If he didn't learn it, it was his own fault, not the teacher's. When students would get frustrated and begin to act out, they would be physically disciplined. It was not unusual to have a whipping post outside of the school building for such discipline. Puritans felt that schools were an extension of the church. Puritan saw children as being innately bad and needing to be reformed. In the 17th and 18th century, this meant that harsh discipline was seen as needed to save and reform the child. They followed closely the Proverbs that said, spare the rod and spoil the child. But this was from the Old Testament and said to have been written by King Solomon, not God. In the New Testament, Jesus was much kinder regarding children. In Luke 18, 16, it said, But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. We also know that Jesus was kind to those who the priests of the temple would cast out for being robbers or having disabilities. His goal was to help them see through modeling and discussion, the better way to act. Teachers and others also did not feel that there was any difference between a child's mind and an adult's mind. This meant that if a child made a mistake or acted out, he would be punished based on the belief that he knew better but was choosing to misbehave or to be sloppy. This however, and unfortunately, is still the view of many adults today, despite extensive research on brain development, which proves otherwise. Due to the connection of church and school, and the belief that children were inherently evil, punishment was handed out for even minor infractions. And the discipline was in the form of corporal punishment, with whipping posts being common, as were switches and belts, and rulers to hit a child's knuckles. Slowly, there has been a shift to fines and verbal corrections for lesser offenses. This became more common as schools moved through the 19th century. It did help that Benjamin Franklin wrote in his proposals that he believed that schools should consist in good teacher-student rapport, agreeableness, frequent student activity, and a relevant curriculum. This new liberalism was was beginning to spread throughout the country but it still took over hundred years to take root educationally. While corporal punishment was lessening, the use of humiliation and minor pain was increasing. The dunce cap is known as a common humiliation for students who were felt to be lazy, although many of them had learning problems. A wooden bit, like what is used on horses, but smaller, was tied to the heads of boys who were considered out of control or noisy. In 1837, Horace Mann became the secretary to the Board of Education in Massachusetts, amid a mutiny of students against teachers who were deemed incompetent and not really interested in their work. Students were rebelling over having to be in school where they were being abused, rather than learning a trade. He started the requirement of professionalizing teachers and began normal schools which were schools for teacher education. A major focus was not on education, however, but on class discipline. It was not until the end of the 19th century that most teachers had graduated from normal schools or universities. Mann did realize that there needed to be a change from the historic use of severe, harsh modes of control. Others after 1840 also began to realize that the historic model which assumed that children were innately depraved and had to be rehabilitated, was incorrect. Through the guidance of some educational theorists from Europe, children were beginning to be seen as individuals and not just little adults. They introduced educational materials to aid in learning, such as reading materials other than the Bible, games, manipulatives, and nature studies. It was finally seen that if educational environments were active and secure, children behaved better. But as they were making these changes, there were other problems being seen. As compulsory compulsory education became the norm in the States, schools had another challenge. In 1911, it was found that one half of the students in public schools of the 37 most populous cities in America were of foreign born parents. This led to struggles in teaching students because of language barriers. Teachers had to figure out how to teach English to these students, as well as the academics. Again, frustration by both the student and the teacher led to over-disciplining, even for minor infractions. The early 1900s also caused a significant increase in children in school due to the child labor laws. The first laws were enacted in 1916, but with the eventual Federal Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, young children were no longer allowed to work rather than go to school. This led to segregation of students based on age rather than ability in order to manage the masses. It was also a segregation that led to isolating certain students into dead curricular tracks. Think about BD classes and LD classes nowadays. This work by Mann and others led in the early 20th century to the child study movement where there were in-depth observations of children at different developmental levels to understand how they grew and developed. They realized that children learned better if they could move more. They found that it increased their growth socially, morally, and intellectually. Teachers were encouraged to motivate children to do, do correct things rather than punishing them which is felt to move children farther away from good behavior. Despite this new view on children, through the 1980s, corporal punishment was permissible in all states. This followed the US Supreme Court case of 1977, which ruled that corporal punishment did not apply to the cruel and unusual punishment clause of the English Amendment. As of 2018, Corporal punishment is still legal in private schools in every state except New Jersey and Iowa. It is legal in public schools in 19 states and practiced in 15 states. The last statewide ban was in North Carolina in 2015. As of 2014, it's estimated that a child was struck in the U.S. public schools once every 30 seconds. Currently, the US is one of two Western world countries that allow corporal punishment. The other is parts of Australia. In all, corporal punishment is banned in 128 countries in the world. It should be noted that schools have grown increasingly bureaucratic over the century, formalizing disciplinary systems and shifting from physical punishments such as whipping to forms of spatial or structural punishment, such as suspensions and isolation rooms. School discipline has not only become to resemble the operations of prisons or policing, but has grown increasingly integrated with those institutions, subjecting children to new levels of surveillance, restraint, and criminalization. By the 1950s, there were tight connections between social service agencies, juvenile justice, and the police. The police were part of the school systems as early as the 1940s as school resource officers. The thought was the police would be role models for troubled students. It was felt that they would intervene more effectively in the hallways than on the city streets. Unfortunately, this led to more arrests and court involvement. Police were allowed to be more physically aggressive than school administrators who only had the paddle for corporal punishment. Part of the problem was, and still is, a lack of education of police officers to understand child development and non-aggressive approaches. The disciplinary, disciplinary structures in the schools show that one, more boys are punished than girls and more poor students and students in color are punished. Teachers no longer handle discipline, but rather report students for discipline to the administration. And there has been an increase in suspensions and expulsions. Students and parents are now seeing teachers as snitches, not advocates. Overall, the role of schools as the foundation for moral formation have evolved into institutions to enforce behavioral management. Education has taken a back seat. Children who weren't compliant began to be labeled with different pathologies rather than the historic depraved or evil labels. Physical punishment was also looked down as more women became part of education and had a fear of legal liabilities. Teachers felt that it fell outside of their profession. This led to the enforcement uh, being given by the principal or other administrators. A therapeutic language emerged in which misbehavior became a disruptive force to be managed rather than a moral failing to be punished. This in essence pathologized behavior so that there was no need to understand it and work out a solution. This brought about the use of behavioral disorder and emotional disorder classrooms with their isolation rooms. In the 1970s, there began to be the use of restorative justice In the justice system, the goal was to develop a reconciliation between the victim and the person who had harmed the victim. It has been successful in many situations and in 2007 was first tried in a school in Oakland, California with success. Since then, there has been an increased belief that restorative justice with its demands for mutual recognition, respect and atonement is far more in keeping with the proper understanding of schools as moral communities, and as such marks a more fitting approach to school punishment. Along with the concept, there's also been an increasing emphasis on teaching students social and emotional skills, and I'll get more into this in a bit. Nowadays, the role of the school is to provide academics which will prepare students for vocational training skills. This is not just math and science, but what employers call soft skills. These include communication, responsibility, teamwork, and problem solving. This is where school discipline has failed students since they can't share why they did what they did so that communication can be improved and problem solving can take place. Students are told that there are no excuses and they have to live with their choices. This is totally contrary to how restorative justice works. Schools are also supposed to teach the liberal skills of autonomy and personal responsibility. Our current society, however, is demonstrating that while prior students embraced personal autonomy, individual rights and rules, they haven't learned about personal responsibility. They also haven't learned the role of civics, which relates to how their actions affect others. They don't know how to live together peacefully and justly in a democratic society where tolerance and open-mindedness is essential. Students were never taught these skills since they couldn't discuss the whys of their behaviors or have them considered as valid reasons for their behaviors. Much of this is due to adults looking from their viewpoint of adults and how they would act rather than thinking about how they would have handled the situation if they were the child's age and development at the time of the event. The fact that schools are dealing with children and youth without full judgment, knowledge, and experience capabilities also implies that the school itself might be partly to blame for student behavioral issues. If so, it would therefore be unfair to inflict burdens on the student that are purely punitive. A school, as a moral community, needs to be reflective and continually ask how it also bears moral responsibility for the behavior of the students. Now, getting back to restorative justice, let's look at how it's been defined in a book entitled Why Punish by Canton in 2017. Restorative justice was defined as the process whereby parties with a stake in a specific offense Collectively resolved to deal with the aftermath of the offense and its implications for the future. Howard Zare in 1990 was considered one of pioneers of this approach in the criminal justice system, and he urged us to see crime as a breach of human relationships rather than an abstract injury against the state. In his view, the needs of the victims are primary what does the victim need to feel safe and return to wholeness? The offender is asked to take responsibility and to assume a role in repairing harm. At the same time, the needs of the offender are also a concern since misbehavior itself can be a sign of unmet needs. The mediator ensures that the conversation between the parties proceeds without fear and intimidation And that a dialogue among equals takes place. But many of these children need to have other skills before they can participate successfully in restorative practices and justice activities. This is where social emotional learning or SEL is growing as an essential part of the school curriculum and behavioral management plan. It is the process of developing self awareness, self control, and interpersonal skills that are vital for school, work, and life success. Once a child has become competent in in SEL skills, he will be better able to participate in restorative practices. The use of restorative practices are important on the preventative level of actions. They have been shown to help, one, reduce crime, violence, and bullying. Two, improve human behavior. Three, strengthen civil society. Four, provide effective leadership. Five, restore relationships. And six, repair harm. Now, there are differences between restorative practices and restorative justice. The latter, restorative justice, is reactive, consisting of formal or informal responses to crime or other wrongdoing after it occurs. The former restorative practices also includes the use of informal and formal processes that precede wrongdoing, those that proactively build relationships and a sense of community to prevent conflict and wrongdoing. Restorative justice builds on social and emotional learning but also brings the adult into the conversation. So each member can learn how they may have a part in the situation and need to be part of the restoration. A very important aspect is the need for both the victim and the person doing the act to need, to need to explain their reasoning and actions. No longer is it appropriate to tell the doer that he is just making excuses or is lying. Whatever is said is explored further to understand the links or absence of links to the action. An example would be if a child said that the other made him mad, there would be a need to explore what the other child did, or if the doer was already mad and this child was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or even if the victim did something that felt triggering to the doer, was it really important to react in the way he did, or what else could he have done to let the victim know that he was bothered? We have always looked to schools as institutions where our children learn about social action and responsibility. In addition, it provides education so our children can grow up and be able to obtain employment to support themselves and their families. But as I have been pointing out, the focus has historically been on how evil or depraved or wild children are, and that they need to have a strong hand to control and manage them. Children don't learn self control and self responsibility this way, except as a byproduct of fear and pain. We need schools to be what teachers are supposed to be, educators, modelers, and supporters of growth in knowledge and skills in our students. We know from research that effective SEL does the following. Rigorous research has been essential in developing our curriculum. And from it to date, the findings have shown that with SEL, students are 42% less likely to say they were involved in physical aggression. 20% are doing less bullying by students with disabilities. There's an $11 return on investment for every dollar invested in social emotional learning. There's a five to 12% decrease in school dropout rates associated with SEL. There's a 13% increase in academic achievement with SEL. And 79% of employers say SEL skills are the most important qualities for job success. When children become more competent in their social and emotional skills, they will be less likely to engage in aggression and bullying, but they will also be better able to be part of the restorative practices and restorative justice actions if needed. They will understand their role as well as the role of others and how they make choices in their lives. This, has ne- this was never what authoritarian and punitive discipline allowed to develop in a child. Obedience by fear until the fear is gone is what they learned. Getting revenge and being determined to be the authority was their goal. This is where we are in our society right now, and it isn't pretty. We need to support funding, training, and accountability of adults to bring this knowledge to our children. It also needs to be brought to places of employment in order to have better employee-employer relationships. and It needs to come to our elective officials who are not showing any of that right now with a few exceptions. So my call to you is see where you can promote and encourage schools to develop and implement social emotional learning and restorative practices and restorative justice. These will help our kids much more than keeping them out of school, which we already know leads to worse adult outcomes.